0: Thanks for downloading show 105 of the C Suite podcast, which is being produced in partnership with SAP UK, where we are continuing to have conversations around topic areas that were due to be discussed at their Innovation X conference uh, that was unfortunately cancelled as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and in this episode, we have four more experts who were due to speak at the conference, and this time we're focusing on the area of digital transformation. Joining me online to record this podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Alan Brown, who is Professor in Digital Economy at the University of Exeter Business School, uh, but who has also spent 25 plus years in industry with one of his former roles being CTO for Europe at IBM. Uh, we also have Christine Ashton, a CXO advisor and independent non executive director in FS and critical national infrastructure. Uh, Christine was previously the CIO of Thomson Reuters. Uh, next is Sean Pilkington, the SAP on Azure lead at Microsoft. And finally, Timo Elliot who is a global innovation evangelist at sap. So a tremendous panel that should make for a great discussion. Alan, let's come to you first. Uh, you were due to present at Innovation X on the topic of delivering digital transformation uh, which happens to also be the title of your latest book. Um, I therefore thought you could maybe set the scene for us on where we currently are in terms of innovating in today's digital world. Thanks, Russell.
1: Yeah, there's some key ideas, I think, about innovation in a digital world that I think need to be emphasized. And of course, we can start with technologies. We have a massive influx of new technologies of all kinds, and that's having a big impact on the speed, on the agility, on the flexibility that we have in delivering new kinds of solutions. But I think it's important to say that when we look at innovation, we have to really look at the balance of three things. One is the technology, what's feasible with the technology, What I think is just as important is the viability of the business models. So the kind of innovation we're seeing right now is often an an integration between what the technology is allowing us to do and what the business model is going to create as a viable way of us generating money, generating value, generating something new for the stakeholders that we're serving. And those both sit in with the third piece, which is what is it that people want? How do they want to consume it in our digital world? Because our expectations of technology, our expectations of service delivery, our way of thinking about the products and services that we receive is quite different now than it was just maybe certainly a few weeks ago, given what's going on right now, but certainly from a few few years ago. So that combination for me is, is critical.
0: Thanks, Alan. And, um I should add, if uh, listeners stay with us until the end of the show, uh, we're actually going to give you a chance to win a copy of Alan's book. So more on that later. But um, Timo, why is the topic of digital transformation so important to be discussing right now?
2: Well, first, I think it's... I'm pretty sure that nobody ever thought that going digital was a bad idea in principle. The discussion was always about when and how fast to do it and whether the costs were worth it. But right now it's clear that organizations that have already invested in digital have a big advantage while some others are scrambling to even stay in operation. Alan just mentioned the notion of new business models. Uh, Clearly there are lots of organizations that have to rework how they provide their products and services more or less in real time. Digital transformation helps you be more agile, more flexible, provides more transparency throughout the organization. It's exactly what you need for these uh, uncertain times. And and it's not just about business. I think digital transformation is also about society as a whole. I believe that we can create win-win-win situations where organizations can improve customer outcomes and cut costs and help make the world a better place. Christine, we're recording this at... And, and
0: Alan touched on this earlier, arguably the most uh, challenging time for businesses, large or small, uh, you know, around the world. Companies have had to adapt so quickly to how they do business or even change their business offering in some cases. How has lockdown changed the focus of the C-suite?
3: You know, also, I think everybody, you know, on this podcast and everybody probably listening to would agree that, you know, businesses have done a tremendous job through this period. But also we should also be thoughtful about the fact that whatever your size of business, there's likely to be some holes in your PL. You know, many businesses have lost almost an entire quarter. And, you know, they are going to have to think about how they plug that going forward just so that they remain viable and sustainable. And, you know, when I talk to CEOs and C level execs, they they praise the teams, they praise the CIO teams that, that have firstly, enabled the health of their employees and families by, you know, letting them work from the safety of their homes. And many are are very keen to retain some of these changes that have happened, uh, you know, and and that's good. What CEOs are also recognising is that while individual worker productivity has been maintained or even improved, many have experienced firsthand, you know, the brittleness of the business processes particularly when they tried to change them. So I think one thing that's gonna come out of this is much more awareness about maybe business process stress testing. They've become very aware of the fact that they have this process risk. They, they didn't perhaps understand the ecosystem of their suppliers and, and how they work together. And, and for some, you know, they didn't realize the impact of not having a supply of you know, a specially machined part. Or, or, or perhaps skips not being emptied for argument's sake, you know, and, and that has posed a threat to the operational uh, continuity. So I think that really thinking about that is going to be something people come out of this. I think the other thing is that CEOs have been telling me that they now see automation, you know, Timo referenced it and Alan's referenced it, they see that as vital. and And, you know, many wish they'd have had more of it because they have been so reliant on Human glue, particularly in a decentralised environment, which is which is hard to do. Let's face it. So they need to automate now because what they now need to do is pivot some of the resources and you know business models potentially, so that they can plug some of those PL gaps. And I think that you're going to see everybody starting to think about not just digital transformation. Now we knew it but digital transformation that is in smaller cycles, better, faster, and is more focused around business outcomes. And, you know, what I know we'll come on to talk about utility. So that's what I think is going to come out of this, really.
0: Sean, let's um, bring you into the conversation. You're actually managing client digital uh, transformation projects at, at Microsoft, obviously. Before we talk about any case studies, how has the current climate shifted the focus for your company and obviously for your clients as well?
4: Well, at Microsoft, our top concern is always the well-being of our employees and supporting our customers in dealing with you know, the business impact of this current situation. So as a company, we're operationalizing a lot more frontline services. We're focusing on those companies, and those people that are supplying the front line and in the front line of this. So we're working close with first responder organizations, critical government agencies to ensure that they have the support and technology that they need to help combat this crisis there is also a balance that has to be struck you know as a seller myself we're reaching out to organizations to see how we can help them but you've got to be careful that you're not kind of selling or looking to to sell what we're all about is helping and empowering them and helping them through this crisis i mean the guys have alluded to that that it's, it's unprecedented time customers are facing challenges it's not just companies it's industries that are on the brink so it's how we can help them through that time how we can accelerate for one's their digital transformation to help them sustain that business model going forward
0: timo what's been the experience of people that you're speaking to at the moment
2: well, I think uh, Sean's point about the people on the front line is interesting. I think we all can learn a lot from the organizations that are the not-for-profits that deal with disaster response. By definition, these companies are used to dealing with completely unexpected events that can happen anywhere. So they, these organizations have really been designed for flexibility from the start. And to Christine's point, they always have to work flexibly with ecosystems of other people, other organizations like themselves and governments. And so people like uh, the Red Cross, they use supply chains like uh, SAP Ariba so they can quickly get the products they need to the places they need them. And there's a great organization called Plan International that's headquartered in the UK that helps protect children during natural disasters around the world. And they use uh, technologies such as uh, success factors to help find the right staff with the right skills, knowledge of local culture and the languages and so on, to get them on the ground as quickly as possible. And these organizations typically swear by cloud technologies because it means their staff can work instantly from anywhere without having to set up servers. So we all need to be more like the Red Cross.
0: Okay, well, Alan, I wanted to come back to the presentation uh, you were due to give at the conference, which you kindly shared with me ahead of this recording, you highlighted that there were at least five critical dilemmas that must be addressed when delivering transformation. And I thought that would make for a good structure to the rest of this conversation. So they were the productivity dilemma, the value dilemma, and then there was ethical leadership and finally human. So if we take each one in turn, um, let's start with the productivity dilemma.
1: Yes I think it's uh, it's really interesting right now that over the last few years we've introduced new automation new digital technologies and a lot of what we've been trying to do is increase efficiency and speed of delivery and you would have thought that that would have a huge and positive impact on productivity at the individual level at the team level at the organizational level and even at the economy level for the UK for example but if you look at the numbers there's actually some interesting challenges because in the UK in particular our numbers in productivity look like they're going down. And the question is, why is that? Do, how, how is it that the introduction of new digital technologies and automation actually has a negative impact on productivity? And there's a few thoughts around that that might be interesting. One is perhaps people are struggling to adopt new digital technologies. While it's fairly obvious we can introduce automation around some manual processes to go from paper-based processes to online processes. Perhaps the broader implications of us thinking and working and acting digitally is actually much harder than we thought. So so one one potential uh, thread that we could discuss is how difficult is it to move into a digital way of working. But perhaps also there's a broader sense of the digital world isn't like the analog world. It's not like we're moving from a way of thinking about acting in a world that's analog to simply switching on a digital switch. And in fact, maybe we're measuring the wrong things. Maybe we don't think about productivity in the same way in the digital world. Maybe we are just simply, there's a lag, and and we'll see that productivity coming through longer term. So I think that the idea of where are we from a productivity point of view and how do we focus our energy to see that uplift that we need, particularly where what we need right now is a sustainable recovery from what's been going on. So that might be a a good start for us to have a a little
0: discussion. Sure. Christine?
3: Alan raises some really, really interesting points. And, you know, um, over the past few weeks, one of the things that we've seen is purpose driving action. You know, we've seen companies achieve marvelous things because the workforce has been much more connected with the purpose. And we don't measure that any way. And I don't think we have a way of really communicating that. And actually, if you look at some of the needs and desires of the latest generation of the workforce, you know, they're so keen to be better connected with strategy and better connected with purpose. So, you know, maybe we have to start to think up some different ways, as Ellen says, to measure uh, how people can directly see what they're doing in our businesses uh, as it connects to the outcomes and and links to customers. And perhaps you can't have a podcast without a quote, you know, and there is a quote by, uh, I think it was Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, that said, the true joy in life is is being used for a purpose recognised by yourself as an almighty one, which, is a great thought on what we've seen over the past few weeks. And um, Timo talked about the way companies have done things so quickly. You know, I was talking to a company who said that you know they'd achieved a three-year project in in six weeks. So you could argue, why is it what is it we've been measuring that that meant we were happy to see something like that last last three years when actually we pulled together and did it a different way, it could have been done and the outcome achieved in, in, in six weeks. So I think that's Really interesting, and I talked to another company that had implemented a um, software as a service uh, success factors to totally digitise the HR process, and they've literally done it in weeks because they've federated the activities, they've run twenty four by seven projects. So you know, I think I think there's a couple of things. Yes, measure it, measure because that helps to influence behaviours, but also I think rethinking some of the these measures uh, is, is key going forward.
0: It does often take a crisis though, doesn't it, to push things along and, and you know, you start to innovate and, and try things in different ways. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, I would. And, um, you know, one of the things I think we we're going to see, we talked earlier about uh, holes in P&Ls and the temptation is to fall back on what we used to do, maybe from a budget point of view, just giving everybody a haircut style budget, you know, that's that's what they, uh, they always call it. And, and I think what we're alluding to is that we're going to have to be a bit more sophisticated and maybe, you know, challenge ourselves and have differentiated budgets and, and much more sense around actually things aren't always equal across a business and we've got to really flex according to priorities. And I think that will take uh, a different set of thinking as, as people start to come out of lockdown.
2: Sure. Timo? Well, I think we've touched on a, another solution to the paradox of productivity in that a lot of it's about the flexibility and agility that we've been talking about and this has been clearly shown in the current situation the productivity advantages of technology have been immense uh, it's allowed many of us to continue working at home. We're doing this podcast online from our from our front rooms. Um, at SAP, for example, we've been very lucky. We have over 100,000 employees uh, all over the world. All our offices are shut, but we've been able to continue working at near 100%. And that really is because of our investment in information technology. So I think now more than ever, the benefits of investment in digital transformation transformation are becoming very clear. Sean?
0: Sure.
4: Yeah, I think that the really interesting points that are being made there, and I think it's fair to say we're seeing the world change, and the, the productivity, the value versus cost example is really good. I mean, at X, we were going to talk around um, an example that we've seen in our, at Microsoft is with um, Smith's group. So they're doing some really good work at the moment with the ventilator challenge in the UK. They've changed production to help make and fulfill that need. But they were really going to help share with us their digitalization of their information process. So they were running a lot of manual, they had a lot of disparate information systems feeding in, and it was a very manually driven process, five to seven days to make these reports or get the information to their frontline people who really needed it. So through an iterative process, they went through, fully digitalized this, SAP was key in that, to make it a real time data solution, but really, what they were looking at, yes it did help reduce cost, but it's the value, not only from the data that they're able now to transform and to change, but the value for their people. So obviously the ones that were taking five, seven days to manually compile these reports, their time and efforts can be redistributed to help the business to make better processes, and also the front line, they can be more proactive for their customers. So they're not being reactive to a situation, they can obviously They can highlight situations that have occurred in the production line and the manufacturing before that impacts the customer.
2: Since we're talking about productivity, we really have to mention artificial intelligence. It really is an amazing opportunity for increased productivity. Things like machine learning are helping to automate the kinds of complex, repetitive decisions that make up to 70% of some business processes like finance and logistics. Just one quick example. We have a customer, Hartman Health. Uh, They're a world leader in bandages. They help heal over 64 million wounds a year. Um, they realized that in hospitals, doctors and nurses were wasting a lot of time manually keeping track of their products. So they decided to automate it for them. So they used uh, sensors and the Internet of Things to automatically detect when new bandages are delivered. It keeps track of what's being used. And then it uses predictive analytics, machine learning, to automatically order just the bandages that are needed when they're needed. So there's always enough bandages for patients. There's no manual work for the doctors and nurses. So it saves time, saves money, and allows more hospital space to be used for patients rather than warehousing the products that they might need. So a great example of that, win win-win that i was talking about earlier
0: yeah definitely um okay let's move on to the second dilemma on your list alan uh value
1: well i think we started to to move towards this idea of value and where the value lies and i think this relationship between productivity and value is a particularly interesting one and the point i'd like to try to make in a digital world is that we see value in different ways than we did before and a, a, a very obvious example that um, we 're seeing more and more is that we 're seeing value in use as opposed to value in exchange and what I, What I meant by that is um, if we start to put digital technologies around and inside physical artifacts, then we can begin to get streams of information about their use, how people are using, and when they 're using them, how much they 're using them, um, other sorts of ideas about the, the environment in which they 're being used so if i 've got some physical device, instead of me charging a price for me to give it to you and you to give me some money for it, I actually start to learn about what you're doing and which outcome you're achieving as a result of using it. And therefore, we can begin to participate in value sharing in different ways, which is why we get to things like subscription-based pricing. We get outcome-based pricing. We get the usage-based pricing because we can start to differentiate who's using products when and how they're using it. And that gets us into a very different conversation about how we work with clients and stakeholders to use products and services from other parties. And that's a much richer conversation. How we get there, how we think about value and what value means to us is the big dilemma, I think.
2: And I think this goes back to the productivity dilemma. I think ultimately businesses everywhere have been steadily climbing the value pyramid and providing more extra value, but it's hard to get human happiness and fulfillment to show up on productivity figures. So I think organizations are doing a better job of filling the needs of their customers. And it's also a great time right now for organizations to take a step back and figure out what their purpose really is. uh, What problems can they help? With what, how can they add extra value to their customers? How can they help in general?
3: And and I'll just um, build on that really because I think you know this stepping back is super important, and I think uh, it's about doing it in a way that starts to explore really what customers now need and suppliers now need because people will and companies will come out of this really uncertain about what they need. Uh, for example. And and I think that it gives us an opportunity to start new ways of working, to consider ways of collaborating with not just customers and our customers, but the customers of our customers and potentially our suppliers and their suppliers, and and actually take that much more end-to-end view. Because I think that, you know, some of the other points we've talked about, that will help us in terms of thinking about resilience, robustness, and will also help us to think more about how we can change what options we might have and and I think it will uh, it will really bring more creativity, not less to the to the marketplace
1: I think the difficulty right now, Christine, is as we look at organizations large particularly large established organizations, uh, their current business model is very focused around sell more stuff so so the challenge we face is how we can move from a, a sales organization that's focused around the selling of more product to deliver uh, to an organization so that the salespeople are comped on selling more, more often, rather than them realizing that what they need to do is sell less, but they sell things that are used more intensively and the value may be given downstream when that's being used, when that's being used more, when that's being used in new and more profitable ways. And the company gets recognized for that as a result of that use. And that switch, that movement, is very difficult for organizations for many organizational structural business reasons.
2: And a big part of it, I believe, is the, that traditional business metrics like revenue and profit are not very good at capturing customer value. There's really only one way to know what customer value is about, what people are really appreciate about your products, and that's to ask them. So we're now seeing a rise of experience management tools where you do a lot more active listening of what the customers want, and that helps you align your business resources with what the customers ultimately want. We need.
0: Sean, just um, coming back to the case study you started to talk about with the Smiths Group, how, how are you proving the value to the business of, of that?
4: It really is along the lines that have been highlighted. So rather than being transactional-based, cost-based, you know, value-based, what can we do with this transaction? It's looking at the whole relationship and seeing that end-to-end to seeing how that information is now being a data. You know, Smiths are now become a data-driven organisation, but how that data can then drive them, how they can utilize that data. And we found that with other customers as well, that once they start to open this, once they start to remove these data silos, the insights they get, they actually realize that you know, perhaps the business models they've been using, the business processes they've been using, the way they've been engaging with their customers is wrong, because it's a point in time basis. It is, oh, we want to sell you this, and then it's moved away. Like Timo was saying, that sentiment, that review cycle, that relationship, suddenly becomes a lot more focused for them. So they're starting to look at how they can empower their customers, how they can raise that value to them in their marketplace.
0: Okay, uh, let's move on to the third area, um, which is the ethical dilemma. Um, I know, Timo, uh, you've got a couple of uh, good case studies to to share on, on this topic. But again, Alan, do you want to just set the scene on on this one?
1: Well, I think the ethical dilemma is one we're becoming more and more Uh, understanding about the the challenges that it faces and if we take um, a follow-on from the just the previous example where we're starting for example to put more devices in the home and we're starting to use those devices to understand people's behavior in the home we end up with some really interesting dilemmas and questions about how do we use that information and when do people feel supported Um, When do they feel like they're getting customized service that adds extra value? And when do they feel like they're being exploited? When do they feel like they're being manipulated? When do they feel like they're being uh, put upon by the organization around them? And we all recognize that there is a fine balance here. And in fact, that balance is significantly moving. Let's take an example right now where people are talking about tracking and tracing. People are looking at that as a really positive way for us to understand the challenges that we face during the current crisis. So will people, as a result of that, change their view on having devices in the home that monitor their use of entertainment, or uh, how often they turn the kettle on to make a cup of tea, or anything else? We don't know what the implications of that will be and where people will sit on this ethical dilemma of personalization privacy.
0: Christine? There's
3: a couple of things to also consider, really, and that's probably our attitudes to things like data and how we collect data. Because, you know, historically, we have perhaps wanted to collect lots of data. And what we've perhaps not exploited is, you know, the whole theory of exception report, reporting and edge principles, you know. Um, I mean, years ago, I, I used um, a sort of track and trace approach when we put in the countdown system in London to you know, track where the buses were. You know, what we didn't do was track every bus. <laughs> what we did, though, was we tracked exceptions. So which bus was actually running late? Uh, because that's all you really hear about. You're maybe not bothered if they're early. You know, so I do think we have to change the way we think about data. I think we have to think about what we leave at the edge and what we bring to the center. Um, and another point, I think, you know, to the point about the ethics, you know, the workforce, there's lots of people that have been furloughed and they've got great skills. Um, they're going to come back into the potential workplace, but they need to be redirected to a different spot. And I think that as businesses, we could do more to make the workplaces more accessible and thinking about ethics and things. Well, maybe we have to rethink single sign on a different way. You know, maybe if I'm a worker and I work for lots of different companies, maybe they single sign on to me, not the other way around, you know? So I think we just have to just rethink and look at some of the models we've had before, just, just in a different way that helps with expediency, adaptability, all the things we've, we've been saying, really. And
2: for me, this all shows very clearly the importance of society and elected officials and laws. Uh, unlike businesses, governments are actually designed to make those tough decisions and trade-offs between competing interests across different parts of a society it's messy and imperfect and frankly infuriating sometimes but as Churchill once said uh, democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others so it's very clearly a role for our society as a whole to make sure that we come up with the the best possible answers to these questions which will never please everyone
0: there you go Christine there's quote number two for for you in our podcast uh, Sh- Sean I, th- I think fundamental to that is the trust,
4: because a lot of that comes down to it's not the data that's being shared, it's who you trust that data with and the organisation. So we, we can look across um, content already. It's whether you trust the people who are using that data, trust them to use that data effectively, not personally. We're seeing it gr- at the moment, aren't we, with the, the debate around the, the app tracking for the, for the virus in various different lines, and it does come down to that trust so it's absolutely what data is being shared and how that's being used. And we need to look at that. But fundamental to that is do you trust that organization, that person with that data? Yeah, I think that
1: is a, is a really key one. And part of this, I, I think it's a little bit that Christine was picking up on, is our own understanding and education about data and the use of data is getting really interesting. So so a few years ago, lots of people were were, were talking about hoarding data as much as they could. And as as Christine said, people were saying, let's collect data. We'll find a good use for it. Now I'm getting more people coming back to me saying, wow, that data stuff, there's a real liability with owning and managing data, isn't there? First of all, there's lots of it, and I've got to keep it for a long time. Then it goes out of date. Then I've got quality issues around it. Then I'm not sure sure who I can share it with. Then I'm trying to work out if I use it, what will people's attitude be and whether they'll think of me as a as an exploiter of that data or a support with that data? And they're beginning to say, and I can't even work out how I forget it. Because if I've got it now, it's like I've always had it and I always will. And that to me is a massive liability I don't know how to deal with. So I think on all sides, people are are in the middle of this debate of how to deal with data.
2: Uh, people often say that data is the new oil, and I think that summarizes Alan's point. Up in that, data is very valuable, but it's also very toxic if it's mismanaged.
0: Just on this on this point of tracking and, and tracing, in an early episode of the C Suite Podcast, and and it's show fourteen. If any listeners want to check back in the archives, but we were discussing the use of social media within public services, and we got onto the the subject of predictive policing. And we were talking about the fact that studies have shown that you can look at social media postings and overlay them with hotspot areas for crime and, and particular crime types. And we kind of joked at the time about policing turning into, I don't know if, you've, if you guys have seen the film Minority Report, but on, on this ethical dilemma, how far could you see technology being used for things like that?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of opportunity in many areas, um, policing and many others. I, I'm mostly I'm in the education area. And, and a good question about online education is uh, how early on in somebody's use of online learning can you predict they're going to fail? And it's actually pretty early on. Wow. You can look at their behaviors and you can say, after about 20, 25% of the course, we know if you're going to pass or not. Now, what do we do about that? And the answer, of course, is positive intervention is trying to work out how we can encourage and support and say, what would help you to work differently, to think differently, to try to buddy up with somebody who's perhaps in a different place in their learning journey, those sorts of things. And I think um, this kind of predictiveness of data and intelligence and uh, AI will give us the opportunities to intervene earlier to try to help people earlier and to try to encourage and support. My worry is whenever we talk about that predictive nature, it's always a negative. It's always, you know, you'll get arrested before you've even done it. And, and I think that's, um, that's possible, but I'm much more hopeful that we'll use these in positive ways. Right.
0: Sean?
4: Yeah, I was, I was thinking along the, those lines, Alan, as well, because I think you mentioned Minority Report. I think the film, you know, the Hollywood, the, the kind of the, the glamorous way of looking at it has fueled that speculation. That you will be punished beforehand, but rather looking at that data as a way to prevent and educate the person so are we going to looking at crime hotspots are you going to be looking to arrest the person before the crime or eliminate that crime altogether by educating the person avoiding the crime looking at what the maybe the social area or aspects for those hotspots are what the data is behind that's so looking at it as a way to educate and eradicate rather than
0: punish right. Timo, Christine, any thoughts? Timo.
2: So one thing I'd say is that there are, is clearly so much value we can get out of these amazing new predictive technologies that would be unethical not to use them as well. Uh, but we do have to be cautious. I think one way of thinking about it is that algorithms are basically sociopaths. Um, they can be very powerful and useful, but they have no understanding of human nature or what they're really doing. So we have to keep them very firmly under human control at all times and Initially, at least, the best place to use them is in automating those repetitive decisions and things like supply chain and finance, things that don't touch on the human condition. And then over time, hopefully, we'll learn how to use these to improve more human situations, like helping people proactively with their learning, but in ways that ensure that we don't fall into the inherent problems of diet bias in the underlying data.
3: Well... Uh, I'm not sure what sort of films you guys watch, but uh, I think it's also about thinking about track and trace for good and um, and also using some of this data for purposes we never intended at the, you know, before, before COVID and I think what another thing that's going to be quite interesting is tracking touch and engineering for no touch. So maybe we start to track, you know, how many times a package was touched by somebody Or, you know, we we start to think about our processes, how do we engineer touch out of them, you know? And and how do we track and trace, not just touch, but CO2, plastics, miles. So I think there's a whole uh, sphere of things that actually the world (laughs) and businesses are gonna demand. But at the moment, what's interesting is, I don't think we've got the space to do it because we're spending so much time on our business backbones and on our operational processes. And I think that's where, you know, Timo's evangelism about AI and RPA is so crucial because unless we can cut down the amount of time we spend, for some companies it can be higher. I think Alan, we were talking, you know, maybe 80% of their time they're spending on just these routine processes. So until you can cut that down and then do what I think was termed uh, steering Steering looking through the windscreen instead of the, the rear screen, then then businesses may, may often argue they have neither got the time nor the resources to tackle some other things that they need to tackle in the way that we're talking about.
2: And, and to Christine's point, we're seeing a lot of organisations right now using technologies like robotic process automation that allows you to record a series of actions across multiple systems and then play it back. Because people are finding themselves at home and having to sort of reinvent processes on the fly, so these kinds of technologies are a great stopgap until you can uh, do sort of the proper integration between your systems.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you made some some great points. And, and one of the ones to pick up on is, I think the expectation is raising uh, the bar quite significantly so you made a comment that i just want to pick up on which was i think organizations may be at more risk because they can't act on things they should be able to know and do so so just as an example um, if, I'm a, if I'm an education organization like a university and I have information about students, about their, uh, what they're learning, what classes they go to, uh, the accommodation they stay in, what they're looking at online, and they have some sort of um, challenge with mental health or physical health or learning and they fail the course, the question comes back, who's at fault? Is it the individual or is it the university who knew or could have known or could have inter- intervened early on? and didn't. And in fact, that you are seeing universities being sued because somebody failed and said, it's not my fault. I'm a good A student. It's your fault because you didn't support me to be successful. Now, that's a really interesting shift in who's responsible for what. Whether you call that the nanny state or anything else, we are moving to that situation where that who's responsible for what and what you do with information is changing. And that's a really interesting place we're at right now.
0: How how far back can we go? Because I really messed up my A levels in 1985. Can I can I can I go back to my school and put put the blame on them? Why not? It's worth a try. <laughs> um, I guess closely linked to to ethics um, is is another one which is kind of more from a purpose uh, perspective. So I was thinking, you know, in terms of how digital transformation is is impacting the environment, Timo. I know there were a couple of case studies that you were going to talk about at Innovation
2: X on, on this area, and I thought maybe. You know, you could touch on those now. I'd I'd love to. So two of my favorites right now. First is uh, ACA, the Asociación de Cooperativas Argentinas. It's a cooperative of cooperatives that represents uh, the 150 agricultural cooperatives that in turn represent over 50,000 individual farmers across Argentina. And they've implemented a program to use machine learning to help farmers move from subsistence farming to sustainable farming. So, it gathers data from lots of different sources in the cloud using things like satellite images of fields across the country and data from the farmer's machinery. And it brings it all together, uses a machine learning model, and then provides proactive advice back to the farmers. So, it might say, hey, there's, there's a warning, there's a part of your field has got a discoloration, you, maybe uh, it's infected, you need to go and treat it, or there's a storm coming, you should do your harvest now rather than later. The net result is that the farmers get more out of the crops with less resources. So it's good for the farmers, good for the planet, and uh, good for all of us as a whole. Second example, farmers cut um, today actually fresh greens, your salad that you eat with your meal, actually has a pretty bad carbon footprint. On average, that lettuce has traveled over 2,000 kilometers to get from where it's grown to where you're eating it. And Farmers Cut have created a series of urban farms that use what they call dryponics technology. It's a controlled environment. So they use 90% less water, 60% less fertilizer, no pesticides. And the products are actually still growing as they're delivered to your home. So they keep all of their nutrients right up to the line second. Again, a nice example of using the latest technologies. They use machine learning to make sure that each crop gets exactly the, uh, the sunlight and water it needs at the right moment in the growing process and so on um, to help the customer experience, cut costs, and help the world be more sustainable.
1: I think Timo's raised some great examples there. And, and right now, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of what it means for us to have a sustainable recovery. Um, If we think about the challenges we're going through, we've gone gone from shutdown to lockdown to slowdown. And we're wondering what's going to happen uh, as we go through slowdown and what's coming out the other side. And and this idea of sustainability is really important from from the point of view that that Timo just highlighted. But more broadly, sustainability from the point of view of financial sustainability and, and from a business model point of view, from the idea of our people. I think Christine was pointing out that we've got an interesting challenge about furloughed people and retraining people. We've also got an interesting challenge from our people who are in work suffering mental health issues and stress issues and trying to work from home and balancing many constraints. And we've got broader sustainability issues, which is how are we going to look at society and and business as a whole as we move forward, where we've clearly seen a world that's going to look very different downstream. Borders are going to be looked at differently, silos of who's working with whom, the kind of uh, way in which an organization looks at the way it uh, it creates money, creates value, and who gains that value. So I think we've got lots of things right now that are in this ethical area, which are to do with sustainability in the the classic sense of um, sustainable food production and so on. But sustainability in a much broader view. And I think that's going to be one of the big things coming out of the current crisis.
3: You know, Alan. I think you you raised some uh, really important points. And you know, if you think back to the 2008 financial crisis, the thing that the government did after was they did these stress tests with the banks. If you remember, um, but it was balance sheet stress tests. And I wonder whether something we might start to see coming in is sustainability stress tests. So you know, if you are a big provider in society, you know. Just for argument's sake, the, the big supermarkets that, crikey, we rely on, <laughs> thick and thin. Maybe, maybe the government should be asking some of these organisations to demonstrate uh, that they've stress-tested some of their processes, for argument's sake. Yeah? And, I, and I think that it's not that government will interfere more, uh, because I think that you know, maybe none of us want to see that, but I think that actually government might ask for more assurance um, from businesses, and, and maybe that won't be a bad thing.
1: That's a great point.
0: Okay, uh, two more dilemmas to look at from Alan's list. Uh, the next is leadership. So, Alan?
1: Yeah, I think it's, what we've talked about feeds into this leadership to, to, uh, a point, which is what's the, what's the role of a leader? If we're in a, a more diverse environment, if we're in something where the data tells us what to do more, if we're in a situation where there's much more, uh, what should we call it? I, would, I wouldn't like to call it chaos, but let's call it more volatility then maybe the fact that I've experienced from 25 years ago isn't as relevant to us right now as it perhaps was in the past. I think this this idea of the rear view mirror versus looking out of the, the front windscreen comes to mind so what is the role of leadership and how do i look at myself as a leader as a manager what's my role what do i do how do i lead from the front lead from the back support my organization and i think we're, we we we've been looking at that challenge over the last few years again the last few weeks has really accelerated our view of what does it mean to lead
0: well picking up on that actually because because what i was going to ask you i mean obviously leadership is being tested massively at the moment have you seen any examples that have either good or bad since this whole lockdown started? Alan, let's stick with you on this first, and, I'll, and then I'll come to each of you.
1: Yes, I think we've probably all seen people who've been acting in a very responsible way, looking after their people, checking in and making sure that their, um, their, their own personal circumstances are right, uh, encouraging a kind of flexibility that's needed right now, but also demonstrating in, the, in a personal way their commitment to their people, to the organization, to the to the uh, environment in which they're working. And I've seen that in many organizations and one of the most positive things I've seen over the difficult times we, we've been going through is some real people stepping up and showing what leadership means in these difficult times.
2: And I believe certainly active listening to what your employees are experiencing right now is absolutely essential part of leadership. So. Uh, employees that feel like they listen to the higher satisfaction, greater engagement, greater efficiency, lower turnover, lower costs uh, every indicator is correlated with high employee satisfaction, leading to higher customer satisfaction, ultimately. One of the things that we did um, was roll out SAP Qualtrics Pulse Check. Uh, It's a free service that allows organizations to keep track of where their employees are in terms of mental health and stress and do they have what they need. Um, So whether it's employees like ourselves in offices, or it could be nurses or teachers, making sure that you people know what they need to provide to help those people be successful.
0: Sean, how about yourself? Any examples of good or bad leadership you've seen?
4: Yeah, the only um, the one I'd like to highlight is obviously working for Microsoft. Microsoft have been really good in this area. As Timo alluded to, it's all about the workforce. They put situations in place. One of the easiest things to do in these situations is to say, I'm there for you. You let me know what you need. <laughs> and the onus is on the person there. Whereas Microsoft have really been on the front foot. There's a lot of well-being, a lot of mental health that they're promoting, even down to individual managers having check-ins on a regular basis where their employees having kind of downtime, so blocking time in your diary to meet as a team and not discuss work, to have that leisure time, kind of that water cooler chat that you get in the natural ebb and flow of the office, you know quizzes and ledger, you know team building exercise, just have that break because it, it is. Really, to be on the front foot and to be more positive than just you know, as I said, you let me know when you're feeling bad. I've
0: I've never done so many quizzes in my life. I've started reading a <laughs> QI book now just to pick up on all the, all these uh, quirky facts. Uh, Christine, how about how about yourself? Well,
3: you know, I think that one thing that has emerged out of this is just the importance of leadership communication, not as something to do, but as a, a just a vital tool. But you know, we are still in sort of crisis leadership at the moment and um, uh, a leadership style where workers have had to deal with not just 24 by 7 working but they've had to deal with putting in more capacity. I talked to one firm where their capacity had gone from x to 10x. I talked to another one where their capacity had gone from x to zero. So you know people have had to deal with these very different situations but at some stage as we release lockdown we have to come out of this crisis mode and um, you know i think that's where the real new leadership style will be needed and i do hope that some of the uh, skills and behavior behaviors we've seen on zooms and, and things which has been more inclusive uh giving more people chance to speak will, will prevail and i also think that we've perhaps started to learn to operate in probably a bit more non-hierarchical way. And, and I think that, that that will be something really important. I think as we have talked though, as, as we maybe think about automating processes and doing processes differently, I think there is a big job for leadership as we come out of uh, lockdown to have people think differently about their businesses and maybe help them to think about what they've got permission to do, which may well be different, than when we went in and helping to change authorities but also to close down some pet projects and to you know rethink about priorities and and that will be hard and and some might say well leadership was always thus uh i don't know which quote that was but you know they may say leadership was always thus i think what's important now is we've sort of like been to the edge and we've seen what catastrophe could look like and and now maybe as we come back and start thinking forward, I think that having more purpose and a more engaging way of uh, communicating purpose is, is, is just going to get us to a different place.
1: Uh, and I think what's, what's going to be critical right now as well, Christine, is which data do you rely on as you're moving forward? What do you use as input for that next period? Because there's, there's an obvious question, which is which, which of the things that have gone before still matter today? And there's, there's extremes. People say, well, yeah, we've, got a, we've had a bit of a crisis, but nothing's really changed. And what you relied on before and did before, you will do again. And there's others which say, no, no, for me, everything has changed. My environment, who I work with, who the suppliers are, how people value me, um, who my workforce is, where they are. And therefore, I can't operate in the same way. And the data I used in order to decide what my strategy is is no longer relevant. And of course, there's everything in between. And I think that's gonna be another major dilemma for leadership. Where do I get that data? Who do I rely on? What do I build on? How do I create the flexibility I need to learn from what I'm doing?
0: Okay, I'm conscious of time because we have been chatting for quite a while, which I, I, to be fair, I expected uh, with the four of you. But let's let's move on to the, the fifth and final dilemma on um, Alan's list, and that's the human dilemma. Um, and th- there's a real issue here, obviously, around digital technology complementing rather than potentially uh, replacing um, humans in, in the workplace. And obviously the stress and uncertainty and impact. I mean, we've, we've talked about this, you know, impact on, on mental health um, that, that that can have. What's your thoughts on that? Alan, let's uh, start with you again.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things about the human dilemma we're facing. um, The the first one I just wanted to highlight is we've always had that challenge as humans that technology dehumanizes. It's not something that supports what we do in creativity and builds our confidence and helps us to work as individuals and as teams. It's actually something that has the effect of replacing us, of alienating us, of removing us. Um, And if we're not careful of homogenizing, what, what goes on? And we've always had that challenge. And I think with digital technologies such as AI and machine learning, people have feared that more with the fear of job losses and everything else. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now is uh, an interesting blend because of what's happened over the last few weeks. People are beginning to see that these technologies are necessary. In fact, we couldn't operate without them. And it's helped us in ways that we hadn't expected. So I think people are starting to look at that a little differently. But I think on the individual level, what it's also done is meant that people are starting to to perhaps not switch off. Perhaps they've been connected in their kitchens as much as when they're uh, at work during the day. They've been unable to separate different parts of their lives. The, the, The stress and mental health issues at all levels, both in the workforce and at the student level, has never been at the levels we've seen it right now and many people are connecting that with the increase of technology. So we've got a real real challenge here that we face.
2: We're talking about increased stress from technology, but at the same time, can you imagine how much more awful lockdown would have been without technology? No Skype calls with the grandparents, no Netflix, no online shopping. Uh, and I've seen an explosion of creativity from my daughter's digital art all through to the TikTok videos I've been watching, which I recommend if you haven't checked it out. It's, it's, a, it's a very positive, feel-good place to go and visit right now. Um, so more technology is clearly never going to be a panacea, but I think it's better than the alternatives. Christine?
3: I'm kind of with, uh, I'm kind of with Timo on this. Uh, because I think we have to think about automation for good. in fact, I, I think I'm going to start a campaign. We have to think about automation for good. You know, Alan raises some good points that almost now with people have got more things to do, more things to think about all the time. So we have to use technology to stop some things, to make some things exception based as we've just been talking about, and uh, we we have to kind of start to reskill workforces. I think things like strategy skills, analytical skills, predictive analytics, and and change the idea that you come to work to work on a process. Because I'll go back to my earlier point, really, you know, uh, a lot of the young people that are coming into the the workplace, they want to know, how do I help this business grow? How do I I do different things? And and that is going to take a a different set of thinking, uh, in my view. But I do think we have to have this campaign of automation for good and uh you know just really think about how it's not just going to change businesses but uh you know make them really really more successful you know
0: sure i think i
4: think it's a real challenge i get what tim was saying there has been positives and the situation that technology has brought but there's also dangers you know the human element we rely on that human interaction and i think with putting digital screen in there what it has increased people's stress levels because they can't switch or change these personas. The only interaction with family, friends, leisure time and work is kind of the same screen. It's, my, I think it would have been a lot harder, especially in the UK if we've had worse weather. <laughs> I think people have been able to get out, enjoy the outdoors more. It's quite interesting, some of the um, you know the activities, some of the challenges that the government had in the lockdown is the isolation and social distancing outside. But yeah, technology is great and it does improve and we have felt the benefits of that you know, through Netflix, through the streaming services, but we can't ignore that human element, that need for us to have that human kind of interaction.
1: And I, and I think a big thing we're gonna face is uh, what people are going to do now. Um, yeah, nobody's used the new normal yet, which is a terrible phrase. So I'll use the new normal phrase. Um, we, we don't know really uh, how we're going to evolve over the coming weeks as lockdown eases up. And will people start to interact more on a human level? Will people rebel against the technology in place? Or will they say, man, it's amazing what we could do with that technology. I'm not sure we need to be together as much. Or when we are together, we use that in a much more productive way for the things that being together physically can really help when we're being really creative, when we need to um, try new ideas out and very quickly swirl around those ideas. So it's possible we'll get into a really creative phase right now that's a different blend of technology automation and human creativity and I'm really positive about that in the in the sense that uh, Christine just mentioned
0: you know I I use an audio bleep when anyone swears on my podcast I'm thinking of using it when anyone uses the new normal but I'm going to let that one go Alan because that was the first mention but anyone else they're going to get bleeped
2: Well, how about the new abnormal? Oh, go on, Is that interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, I've got one more question for you all. But before we do that, competition time, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Alan has kindly given us a copy of his book, Delivering Digital Transformation, to give away to one lucky listener. Uh, so to be in with a chance of winning, you'll need to go to the podcast.com website, click on the competition prize draw link at the top of the page, uh, where you'll need to answer the this question that Alan's going to set. Alan, over to you.
1: Yeah, so I I won't make this too hard for anybody. So here's the question that I'm setting for you. How many different dilemmas did we discuss on today's podcast that we think are critical for digital transformation?
0: There you go. How easy is that? So remember, enter via the website, terms and conditions apply as you'd expect. And they're all linked uh, from the competition page. Right. Uh, Finishing off, what does the future hold? Uh, What would you each recommend to organisations to consider for the immediate future as we hope to be out of lockdown soon? Um, And also, maybe looking to plan for, let's say, over the next five to 10 years? Sean, let's start with you this time.
4: I think it's real to look at it as an opportunity to look at this time to re perhaps think, rethink your business models, to reevaluate your use of technology. We've seen great leaps when technology becomes consumerized, and we're seeing that a lot more with the collaboration. It's also, and again, like I said in the last one, not forgetting the human element. Organizations and companies are made up of people. And in really, essentially, it's the people that are most valuable and really embrace those things and look to a new positive, new future. Christine?
3: Well. I was going to say, don't plan for five to 10 years, okay? Uh, Plan for for six months to 18 months, maybe. And um, introduce processes that really allow you to critically evaluate some of the processes you're already running. And really think about uh, what we were talking about before. You know, every 30, 60 days, really evaluating the efficacy of some of the things that you're doing. The second thing I'd say is also uh, echoing what Sean's just said, you know, look for opportunities to openly collaborate with customers and their suppliers. And, you know, focus on real opportunities to commoditize. So maybe when you're asking a a supplier to supply you with something, you don't have to have extra, you know, special things for your company. Maybe the, the commodity version is good enough you know and really think through where can you commoditize and where do you need to differentiate and then the third thing you know we've touched on it quite a lot through this podcast is consider what they call blue ocean approaches to strategy so think about what barber did suddenly barber were creating high fashion next they were making gowns they pivoted and they looked for intersect into intersections so the machines capability cloth so why couldn't they make gowns for example for the nhs and you know really think through uh, how you're planning and think about planning rather than just planning on consumption by your customers think through how you can plan based on consumption and usability And, and that might help you to probably more quickly see products that are not moving and also help to inform how you might pivot or adopt like, like I say,
2: what they call a, a sort of blue ocean strategy. Brilliant. Uh, Timo? For me, there's only really one thing that we can be certain about in the future. And that is that it's going to be different from whatever we expect today. This means that organizations need to make change and innovation truly a core competency. And to Christine's and Sean's point, that's all about people. It's about fully leveraging the power of human intelligence. Too often today, people are treated like passive users of technology, but nothing could be further from the truth. Every time somebody touches and interprets data, they're adding value. Human beings are without a doubt the most intelligent technology in your organization. And over the next few years, I think we'll see strides in leveraging that technology to get more value. First, by using artificial intelligence to augment human intelligence, to free people up from more mundane tasks so they can spend time on more strategic and important work. Ultimately, only people can understand the full context of a business process, what's going wrong, and what can be improved. What The, the most important thing in business is knowing what's important. And thankfully, that's something that people will always be able to do better than machines.
0: Great. And uh, Alan, we uh, gave you the first word
2: so you can have the last one. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Uh, I think
1: people have have brought some great points to the the fore here about what what to do to look forward. I I just want to reiterate that people are going through very, very difficult times right now. I I don't know any organizations that aren't. There are are a few that are are having a good crisis, but I think the the vast majority are struggling mightily, and we need to help people in these difficult times. Uh, We need to help to support people who are furloughed, people who will be who have and will be losing their jobs. We need to be helping managers who are struggling, trying to help their people through these difficult times, and leaders who have very difficult choices ahead of them. So I think all of that will have an impact that we will have to deal with. Um, I think an emotional impact, a a mental health impact, and a skills impact. And I think it's on all of our, it's, it's, it's all of our responsibilities to try to be supportive and empathetic to those kinds of challenges as individuals, as people who work in businesses and as a society. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of need for support, tolerance and uh, a kind of emotional resilience that will, will be incredibly important coming out of this crisis.
0: Excellent points to sum up there. So thank you so much. That actually wraps up this uh, discussion for our fourth episode in partnership with SAP UK. Uh, So thank you once again to all four of my guests for joining me online. Uh, So that's Alan Brown, Christine Ashton, Sean Pilkington and Timo Elliott. Uh, thanks also to the team at SAP UK for bringing the guests together. And don't forget, you can hear more interesting stories from the world of IT and business by subscribing to SAP UK's own Innovation X podcast series, uh, which is available on SAP UK and Ireland channels. Uh, plus, you can follow them on Twitter for their latest news and updates, which is at SAP UK Island. Uh, in the meantime, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode. Uh, we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of digital transformation. So if you'd like to contribute to the the discussion you can do that on our Facebook page Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages they are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes uh, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the uh, podcast please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you would like to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith Or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.